Well, everyone, if you want to be educated by a very well-spoken ex-professional writer, today is your day. Our guest, Dan Martin Jens, that was so much fun. You can say that again. He gave us a lot of good answers, a good smile. And I love people that they are actually, uh, they are able to actually make fun about themselves and yeah, go, yeah, that was good. That was not so good. No, he was a really great character to have on the show. And he came on right before his birthday. His birthday is actually the, what, the 20th of, of August. So thank you very much for, for coming on, Dan. Um, he kicked a lot of knowledge. And I hope that uh, there's a lot of young men and women out there that listen to this. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our Bobby and Jens podcast with Dan Martin. All right, Dan Martin, welcome to Bobby and Jens. Good to be here. Well, you know, you're a busy guy. I mean, I've been trolling you on Instagram for, you know, quite a while now. Uh, thank you for your patience. I know that you were busy. You know, you just got back from the tour. Um, you know, you have a evidently a new addition to the family that could arrive any day now. So if we do have to stop this podcast because your your wife goes into labor, we'll have to do that. That would be a Bobby and Jens first for sure. And gosh, what else could you be doing? You just started a new bike tour adventure experience company as well. Where do you find all the time to do all these things? All these podcasts. Yeah, you. Uh, yeah, somebody gave me you gave you my phone number in the end, didn't they? As well, that was. Uh, that was. Your, I get text messages to jump on this podcast. All right, okay, that's 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 good to know. Because, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, sorry, but thanks to you guys for the patience as well, because it's been a hectic few weeks and not only, yeah, obviously new addition on the way, school holidays and yeah, moving house, was at the tour for two weeks, uh, and then yeah, running all these other things that I've got going on as well. We've obviously, uh, yeah, we like, I founded a business last two, a few years ago and then just did it, founded a little, like little training camp type business here now as well in Andorra. And just trying to ride my bike a little bit as well, just to try and right, be a, like, have some kind of fitness. Because you still need to be good enough to... I still want to be good enough to try to drop anybody that I ride with. Except for the pros, of course. But uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's just been a... You just called me at the wrong moment. It's been a hectic few weeks. So when you say moving house, uh, from where to where are you moving your house then? Oh, we just... Uh, we, it was a bit of a... Yeah bit of a situation as far as we started building a new house and then we sold our current house but then the new house wasn't ready so we had to move to an apartment now for a few weeks and then or a few months or other and then uh, so yeah we're, it's all within about a two kilometer radius but it's uh yeah still living in andorra still loving it here it's uh it's really a great place like we think to bring up a family and uh and and keep fit and just i think everybody's just really active here there's such a great community of sports people and a great group of friends we got here, so we're, we're happily settled. But let, let's go to Andorra. Uh, you you were one of the first riders to move there because people lived in Monaco, people lived in Girona. You actually lived in Girona. What was the impetus to to move to Andorra, and why is it so popular now for so many riders? For me, it was definitely the training because I was looking around in Girona, and I was really happy there. And but there was a lot of riders moving there. And it's quite a small town. Uh, and you see, it would get to the point where you'd be walking down the street and you'd always see somebody. You couldn't go to a cafe without seeing somebody, whether it be a fan or also a pro rider. And, you know, it, it became quite small, especially the center. But also, I was looking at my results as a rider and looking around the terrain and speaking to, obviously, friends in the peloton about how they trained, were, like why the, guy, the Sky guys were going up to Tide Day and all that to, for the altitude training. And I was just thinking... You know what? I I I'd got to a point where I'd I'd won the age, I'd won Lombardy year, and I was like, well, I'm one of the best riders in the world at climbs of less than 20 minutes, 10, 15 minutes. But as soon as it got above that, I was really struggling. And then I realised, well, wait a minute, all the climbs around Girona are like 20 minutes low. That's got to be so. Maybe I need to progress in the Tour de France and the Grand Tours. I need to actually go and live in the mountains. So yeah, we came up to Andorra just just. I met my wife in 2014, and then we, uh, what, what, my eventual wife, 
And then she, uh, and then we came up here in the winter, and we just really liked it up here. And then we decided to move here. And by the time all the paperwork was on and the house was bought, it was, uh, yeah, we moved up here in 2015. And then instantly, I like within a few months of being up here, I, I was just climbing so much better in the Walter Espanol in 2015 before I crashed out. So, yeah, that was the main reason for me coming up here. Obviously, there are other tax benefits that everybody says oh, that's why you're up here for, but. It's genuinely, obviously, that's not why I'm up here now. I mean, that kind of proves the point. <laughs> There's no way I get any kind of tax benefit right now. But it's, uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's just a really nice place to live. And I think, well, there's 120 pro bike riders here now. I talked to the Federation a few weeks ago. 120 pro cyclists living here between the women and women's, women's peloton and men's peloton. And I think a lot of it is down now down to, well, one of the reasons, I think, I think I'm right in saying one of the reasons Monaco is popular as well with the Aussies is a visa situation because I think a lot of the it's quite easy to get residency here. So a lot of the Kiwis, the Canadians, Australians, and even the Brits now are all live like obviously because since Brexit they need to get an EU visa somehow. And by moving to Andorra, not only do you cancel out the altitude training part of what cycling's become, but also the uh, you get to live in Europe effectively. Well, obviously it's not EU Andorra, so that's where the loophole is. Um, just a stu um, stupid, almost a tourist question. What language do you speak in Andorra? Do you speak Spanish or uh, French, or do you have your own language? And are you able to talk in that language? Just, I'm just curious. I'm just wondering. Yeah, official languages is French and Catalan. So yeah, I speak. I think I speak French from being from cycling, obviously, from being at school and cycling, and then uh, I speak Spanish from being at UAE. Uh, As that was the language there, mate, more or less when I was there. But most people speak English now, and there's a massive expat, expat community. All these all these sports people from different sports, and that's who we hang out with most. But I mean, yeah, it's a tourist place. There's a phenomenal level of English here now, and there's like yeah, nationalities from yeah all over the world. It's pretty, it's really quite cosmopolitan. I I got to go up there. I I think we had a stage of the Tour de France finish up there a couple years. Um, but yeah, I got to put that on my list. But you said you know you have a history in in this sport. You were educated in this sport. Um, very unique situation. Like your dad was a racer. Your uncle Stephen Roach won the Triple Crown, the Giro, the Tour, and the World Championships. And even your cousin, Nicholas Roach, who was on our podcast earlier, like how cool was it growing up, not only having family members in, in cycling, but just really that, that, that history of, of cycling in itself. I think it really normalized being a pro cyclist. Like for me, it was just almost like following in the family business type thing. It sounds ridiculous, but you know, I, I, in my like the guy who I co-wrote my book with he's got they got this anecdote out of me which is like it literally the guy who won the Tour de France in 1987 or won the obviously the the triple crown was just a guy sitting opposite me eating turkey at Christmas you know it was just that that, that it was just normal to be a, a, a like, I never grew up having a dream of being a pro cyclist it was just yeah if I ever wanted to be it I'll just it'll just happen and I think that's what really it it gave me that more than ambition it was a belief that I was going to go to pro cycling but obviously yeah being surrounded from with it from a young age just really i believe it develops a love for the sport that is difficult to to gain otherwise like uh, also i mean i was on the side of the road from from when i was weeks old watching my dad race because he was still racing until yeah i was probably mid-90s so i was eight nine years old and then he started again in like the year 2000 before i even started riding still you know so it was um But my uncle, I never really, obviously he retired before I actually had any concept of what he was doing. So it was, um, it's not like I was watching my uncle on the television at all, really racing. Uh, I probably was, but I was in nappies, you know, I was in diapers. So it's kind of, it, it's, yeah, I, I think from a very, very, obviously from the moment I was born, my father was incredibly passionate about the sport and it was just, and still is. And this love was just grow right, born into me. And just being surrounded by something your whole life, it's kind of inevitable in some ways that you don't want to start doing it. But it took me a long time to start do riding a bike. 
So, uh, yeah, um, at what age did you actually then did your first race? And is it true that you actually happened to race with your dad in the same race? Is that true? Yeah, my first race, I I, I raced with my dad. My first road race. So, so it, in the UK, you can't really race on the road until you're 16 years old. So I, uh, it's a lot of criterion racing. It's a lot of small, like, 5 to 10K flat races. And I just being, obviously, yeah. I'm a little skinny guy. Like I was never going to be good at that, so I'd never really had any ambition. So I just loved riding my bike. From the age, I basically started when I was about 14 years old, mainly because I got my first bike for Christmas when I was 12, and then obviously did what most people do: they clip into clipless pedals for the first time and toppled over. And just I was like, "Yeah, this is not for me." And then you know, just did the whole yeah, leaning tower, like just falling tower, and then it's yeah, and then uh, didn't want to do it until I was yeah, nearly. 14 i think i was and then it's uh yeah just started riding as for, for social for it was just going out with the group on a saturday and, and the weekends stopping for coffee halfway riding home and that's how i started cycling it wasn't for the racing and then started racing all 16 which yeah it's obviously people say it's late but i think it, it led to a it meant i loved riding my bike more than racing i think so um, oh yeah the, my, my dad my dad the story of my dad yeah so the first race i did um yeah first road race it was like literally a week after my 16th birthday uh after 5k there's this big crash and i'm just i'm of course i'm in the middle of it <laughs> it's just like that's how i started my first road race so he was yeah he was not in the crash he was like yeah he just, and uh yeah that's he got me back on and then uh yeah i don't well obviously finishing the pack somewhere but it was not a yeah, it, it was interesting, obviously, learning from him in that respect. You know, you say that it was kind of like going into the family business, but you had an opportunity to go and race for La Palme Marseille, the, the team down in the amateur team down in France. And I think anyone who has that experience as a foreigner um, suffers a little bit. So what was your time like when you moved away from home and started racing on a French amateur team because um, I race on a, a couple French pro teams and it wasn't <laughs> very easy, the transition to say the least. But, you know, you're 16, 17, 18 years old going and racing with this team. How was that experience? Yeah, exactly. I was, it was actually when I was, I was 18 when I first went to France and it was, it was actually a big Nico Roach played the big part in that because I basically essentially took his place because he'd just gone to Cofidis uh, and he turned pro out of La Palme Marseille got to Cofidis and I essentially took his place into this team La Palme Marseille which is, had this massive reputation of working with foreign riders non-French riders and I think they'd had six guys go to what was then World, World Tour teams Pro Tour teams whatever it was called and that the previous year and not only foreign riders but also Irish riders what that meant was that there was a bit of animosity because there's a lot of these French guys who'd been kind of stuck there and they end up just working for these foreign guys and then the year and then at the end of the year the foreign guys all get the contracts and then the French guys still left there you know and, it, and it's kind of like you go in there as a new foreigner and not only is a massive expectation to perform but because you're this foreign guy and you're just obviously because you're in the team you're good because you like but it's also the the you say I mean I did French at school for like what eight years before before I went to Marseille and I I literally barely understood a word when I got there and I was fortunate though because I had uh, actually I was sharing an apartment with there were six of us in the apartment but I actually had Daryl Impey in the same apartment as me in 2005 and just around the corner was Philip Dignan. Uh We had another Irish guy called Tim Cassidy in the in the in La Palma, and then so we, there was a group of like foreigners in the team, but it was still it's hard, you know. It's this, this especially that first year when you're just getting your head kicked in like, every week, just and it as like then there was like issues with hindsight. Now you look back and you're like, oh man, like I was suffering so bad with allergies, but I didn't find it out till like three or four years later. It was just a case of I just sucked until like May. I absolutely just couldn't get out of my own way. And then suddenly, like from one week to the next, just like the lights came on and I just got started getting results. Or or I'd get a result in the rain. 
because obviously there's no pollen in the rain, is there? So you'd just be like, you feel amazing for one day, and then and and then suddenly, and so you'd have there was all these always these glimmers of kind of promise, I guess. But yeah, I I definitely sucked, and there was a, a fair bit of you know it, it's you're in a foreign country, you literally uh, I was earning two hundred dollars a month, you know, and it's you literally just just about enough to pay for you your apartments covers you don't have many expenses of course but and it was a great team to be a part of and it's character for me that's what you call it right <laughs> it's kind of like this yep. I, mean, I mean i think the one week in eight in an eight day period i spent like 40 hours in the back of the truck just like driving to races driving back like you're setting up at like 4 a.m to go ride a race that starts at 12 so you got like a five-hour drive and then it it's just a. Uh, it definitely forms you because then you turn pro and then guys are moaning about taking a Ryanair flight. You're like, oh man, Ryanair? I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the day before the baby Giro, we had like a... No, we actually went two days. We got lucky that year because we, we went two days before because we had a 14-hour drive. So we did 14 hours like in the back of the car down to, Na- down to Naples and then we had a, we had actually had a day to prepare for the 10-day baby Giro. That was in 20, 2006. Yeah, 2006, so... Yeah, it's just a different. It, it's phenomenal, really, when you see how quick, how, how quickly the sports kind of changed in that respect. Even the amateur guys are not really doing that anymore, right? Ninety-seven, um, I was on a small team with a bunch of Australians, and they would events like that. They call them CBT, Character Building Tour. You know, they would just <laughs> go. You know, you look like you say every team goes in the van, goes in their camping cars, and we just in our little, you know, little cars. Sitting there, I like long transfers. You go, yep, CBT again, character building tour. So <laughs> I know, I know what you went through there. So when did you that first time discover that you have a talent for climbing? I mean, you were always naturally built for it. You're, you know, you're skinny, you're lightweight. When did you realize, okay, I'm actually good at climbing, not because I'm so light, but I have a talent for that? Or did you slowly develop into the Dan Martin we then later as a pro we used to know you? Oh, obviously, as a junior, I was always like, anytime there was a hill in the race, a climb in the race, the yeah, I'd be at the forefront of it. And even that, I think growing up in the UK and racing in the UK, it was definitely a part of what became this kind of more like Liège, Ardennes type terrain. You never get a climb longer than, well, most races, the longest climbs a kilometre long, you know? So it's you kind of have to be explosive to make the, the climbs count. And obviously, like I won the junior tour of Wales as a junior, which was I have to put in there because Grant Thomas, I think Grant Grant was second and Stephen Kreuzweig was fourth. So it was, uh, but I've always had that because I beat Grant Thomas on his home race. So actually, the day that when he won the yellow in uh, in the tour in 2018, it was uh, I actually said it to him like we were anti-doping the day before Paris, and I was just like, still have it over you, you know, I still won your home race. So you know. <laughs> It's uh, I'm I'm pretty sure he'd swap his male John for the yellow jersey in the Junior Tour of Wales. That's that's uh, it's definitely going to be something a regret in his life. But uh, but yeah, I mean it's yeah, way back then, and then obviously any any race that I I think you still have to train as a climber, and that's what that's what everybody doesn't quite grasp. Sometimes I think you're na- obviously you have a natural talent for a certain part of the sport, but you still need to work on it. Like the explosiveness that I had it was always a lot of work went into that and also the, obviously the move to Andorra that says a lot about the, how your environment forms the type of rider that you are because I really it's uh, yeah you you can you see it across the sport you know that the, if you change your training slightly it can definitely alter your performance in different level, different ways tell me a little bit now that you're you know retired can you go back and tell us your your memories when you went to the Slipstream Garmin. Uh, they changed their name so many times. Um, team, because man, when you know, I, I have a neighbor here that is a close friend of yours, uh, Christian Vanneveld, and he was a big part of that team. And just today, prior to coming on the podcast, I went back and just looked at some of your teammates. You guys had a cast of characters, but it always seemed like you guys had an amazing time. You're still really close friends with a lot of these guys. Tell us about that experience coming to a an American team with guys like Ryder Heisdahl, Christian Vanneveld, um, Andreas Clear was there, uh, Magnus Bagstad, I think, was there as well. Who else am I missing? Uh, D- Dave Zabriskie. 
I mean, here is a cornucopia of characters in in that team. The, the Irish guy, the lead out man, the big strong army warrior. Yes, of course, Julian D yeah. was there yeah. as well. And like Tyler as well. Tyler Barrow was Tyler also Barrow. like, yeah, it was like, and then a lot of the American guys as well, though, I got really close to because I was always on the Younger Riders program. It's funny because I found, I actually found the, when we showed up at training camp in that November 2007 in Boulder, like Colorado, we've had this like folder of like activities of meet the team, all this stuff. And I actually found it in my clear out when I was clearing out my office last week. It's like it was in this box. And yeah, all these memories just came flooding back of what a, what an incredible team that really was. And I just feel really fortunate to have landed into that as a Neo pro because it really did give me the opportunity to one kind of be able to like do my own, like not do my own thing in races, but also like have opportunities in races from a young age, from my first year. And just also just be somewhere that was, as you say, just a great environment of supportive characters. I mean, my first ever training camp, we did, uh, how long was it? I think it was 23 or 24 days in a holiday inn in Silver City. And my roommate was obviously somebody you guys know well, Dave Zabriskie. And obviously as a Neopro, you go, I'm kind of the first night in bed, you're like, shit, I'm in a room with Dave Zabriskie in the middle of nowhere in the desert in Silver City. And you're just like, this is, it was, it was, and it was just this real, yeah. But everybody, you could just, it was such a nice way to go into the pro peloton. Just felt no pressure from obviously JV as well. Just never put any pre- real pressure on us. And it was, it was more about the performance and the, and the spirit than the results at that, at that point in the team. And it was obviously the team progressed, the ambitions became greater, but. It was those first few years with a group of young American guys as well because the majority of the team in 2007 was obviously made up of the, the old Slipstream team from 2006. Or 2000, no, 2007 going into 2008. So yeah, 2008 was my first year. So uh, so yeah, but I mean, they, like, JV actually tried to sign me for the 2007 season a year earlier, but I told him no because I, I, was, I was like, my, my mentality on that, I'd st- just started to win in the U23s in Europe. And I was, and my mentality was kind of like, do I really want? I'm just starting to feel good in races and be able to race how I want to race. Do I really want to turn pro and get my ass kicked again, like another two or three years? So uh, yeah, I actually said no the first year, but then I think it was a great decision because obviously in the end it worked out well going straight into the 2018, which which really stepped up a level with yeah guys like guys like Magnus and like I, I wonder if JV actually remembers this anecdote because I went into the first directors meeting. And I, like, I wasn't a super confident guy. I was quite timid, and but I sat down and they gave me my race program. And yeah, it was one of dreams, you know, as one something that I'd really not even imagined they would hand to me. Like you had the Arden Classics on there, like Volta Catalunya, and I was like, wow, yeah, this is one hell of a program. But they asked me, are you happy with the program? And I was like, I looked at the list of the races, and I was like, well, you know, I was kind of hoping to lead Magnus into Arenberg in Roubaix, but. And they all looked at me and they thought I was dead serious. I was just like complete, like, and they kind of just like didn't really, I was like, and they're like, it's just silence. It's absolute silence in the room. And I was like, no guys, I'm actually really happy. It's cool. <laughs> like super happy. So yeah, no, it just, and I think it was just, uh, just learning that atmosphere and having that group of guys around you as role models as well. So that's why I think that's really a big thing that with Christian, obviously getting to know him so well, we, we, uh, he, he was definitely, a role model for me throughout my career. So now we've talked about uh, the team being, um, you know, made up by so many international riders. Um, maybe not too many people know you actually represented Ireland, right, at the World Championships, for example. How did that come along? Well, no, it's yeah. I was first I was British, and then I switched to being Irish. So it was uh, yeah, obviously my family connections being Irish, and it was just it was easier to be British as a junior. Because I was living in the UK and just all the obviously national series, national channel, and it was all basically. I didn't want to be traveling to the island, and so uh, yeah, it was a lot more opportunity as a British rider living in the UK. But then once I moved to France, let's just say life became a lot easier being Irish in France. I think there's definitely it was uh, it was kind of funny, but it's uh, they uh, they definitely have a bit more of an affinity for the Irish and the British. But it was, um, but yeah, I. I I switched in 2006, my first year as being Irish, and yeah, they, 
they'd always asked me if I was interested in changing. And at that point, it was a case of, okay, let's, uh, for more opportunity, I think it was an important move. And also, it was, I'd always felt Irish deep down, you know, so it was a case of the, just the love and support that you get, no matter what the result, you know, it was always, Ireland's always a country that as long as you do your best, they're happy. You know, and that's always a great feeling because you go into races not really with any pressure because you know you're going to do your best and you know that everybody's going to be proud of you. And the amount of messages you get after, even before I'd changed nationality, I was getting messages of support, messages of support. You know, so it was um, from the Irish fans and everything. So yeah, it was. Uh, I never really never looked back. But when you talk about getting more opportunity by switching from a British passport to an Irish passport. Did that have anything to do with your goals in cycling? Because let's face it, back then, the UK had a very, very strong track program, but they didn't really have Team Sky yet. They weren't winning the Tour de France. Uh, what do you mean opportunities going to, to Ireland rather than staying in, in the because, UK? Yeah, exactly that. They, were really, they wanted to support me on the road. you know. And it, it, although it was a weaker country, it was kind of, they were, they were really ambitious behind my potential and want and were asking me constantly to change nationality you know so having a country that really wants you versus like obviously being fortunate enough to be able to like make that step versus with the british track program it was very much a case of well well you have to take the, do the track to be be within the organization effectively you know and it was um yeah, I mean, it it wasn't... I just felt more at home there at the end of the day. And I think I've always chosen... I've always followed that gut instinct. That's why I chose Slipstream Sports as my first team. Because it just felt like... I just felt more at ease within within the organisation, within the people there. And it was the same with Ireland. It was a case of, okay, well, if I'm going to perform well at these events, at the World Championships, etc., I want to be somewhere that you feel listened to and you feel wanted. And that was... That was the opportunities we were, we were looking at, you know. It was a case of, well, let's <clears throat> let's go, let's start the year knowing, like, build, being able to build to the European and World Championships and not just think, worrying about fighting for your place and having to prove yourself all the time and actually actually be respected is a big, it's an important thing as a cyclist. And we'll be right back after this short break. Now back to our chat with Dan. And um, moving a little further up in the in the in, in your career now with the Grand Tours, Tour de France, you had so many highlights and and tragic moments. What, what, what would you say if you had to sum it up in one sentence? What, what was the Tour de Grand Tours to you? I mean, it was obviously an adventure. Bobby and me, we had our fair share of crashes as well. We had our fair share of good moments. But what is left in your mind if you look back at the Grand Tour experiences you had? It was up and down, wasn't it? You know, I think that's... But every every Grand Tour is up and down. And I mean, I didn't crash often, but it always seemed to be spectacular. So it always got noticed, you know? So I was, I was never I was never a guy to get caught up in a in a 30-guy pile-up that nobody noticed. You were there, even in there. And then you just got away nicely. It was, I was always a guy doing a spectacular flip off the rock, off the side of the cliff or something, you know? So it was... Um, yeah, and then obviously all the good moments as well. You know, it's uh, it it just went by. I'm sure you guys would agree. It just went by way too fast. It just and at the time, obviously you're you so concentrated on it each day that it just I don't know. It's hard to you just do your best every day and try to enjoy every moment as possible. And now looking back, it's only when I retired that I actually really took the time to think about what I'd actually done because in the when you're racing every day there's no time to look back and rest on your laurels you just want to keep focusing and going for the next race and doing your best for the next race so it's uh yeah that that was always the thing I think when we when doing well on the stage of, of the Tour de France or whatever you you never really have time to enjoy it you just gotta because you have to worry about the next day and then the day after that and it's uh it but yeah it's I mean when I look back now and think about what i actually achieved it still seems a bit surreal because i'm still just, just this guy sitting here you know in andorra and it's uh it, it's it doesn't i don't know it's strange our producer did a little digging and he said that uh he found that you 
kept a journal of your race days. So talking about trying to remember things, um, I did that my whole entire career. Ever since I was a junior, I had my little training diary notebook. I would write things in there. Jens can vouch for this because he was my roommate for so long. I'd be over there writing something down every day. But did you have that your entire career, especially when you were a pro? Did you take time to write down little notes and race results and things like that? No, I didn't. I really wish I did, but I did it until I was, I think I was still, when I was still U23, I was doing it, but then it just got, yeah, I, I don't know why I stopped, to be honest. And it was really, yeah, looking back now, obviously you, you see, for, for one, I can see the training I was doing in the junior. And then people ask, why are these 18 year olds so damn good? I'm like, I can tell you why they're so damn good. <laughs> we, we, didn't have a tr- we didn't have a clue how to train as juniors, you know, but it's, uh, yeah, no, I didn't. I, I didn't do a whole lot, but then it, then I was also, I've also written a lot as far as like diaries for people, different magazines or whatever, and I've kept a lot of all of those. So I definitely have a bit of a of a history of my career, but a lot of it's up here still as well. I have a lot, almost like a photographic memory of, of races and what happened and where they were and and towns and it's it, it's quite. It's quite a skill because I can literally write, especially when you've been like so many Tour de France's. I'd li- I'd be riding down a road and be like, oh, "Yeah, I remember this road. We did this here. There's a corner here in a minute." Like to that extent, you know. So, yeah, a bit a bit weird, but it's uh, yeah. I do wish I get that journal. That must be that's pretty special. So, if you would somehow have the chance to write one page to yourself, 18 years old, what would you write in a diary for yourself, 18 years old, with the knowledge of today? keep going all is good or will be good or what would you what kind of tips would you give yourself I think as an 18 year old just be like eat more on the bike that's probably <laughs> you know? easy keep things easy <laughs> there you go but um, but yeah I mean it's all with hindsight isn't it everything we do is with hindsight and I think there's a huge I'm pretty proud of the fact that that 18 year old kid started off saying that he was just doing recycling to enjoy it and I always promised myself that the moment I never wanted to, to keep going too long that I wouldn't enjoy riding my bike. And that's why I retired at the end of the day. And that's the thing I'm most proud of because I wanted to stop when I was still at the top, but also when I still loved racing and loved cycling and loved riding my bike. And I, start, I, I started to feel that slipping. And that's why I stopped. So I was like, you know what? Like, this is becoming a job. And I never wanted that to happen, you know. I wanted just to be able to look at my bike and just be like, okay, it's 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 uh it's giving cycling's giving me everything, and and so that eighteen year old had a really good outlook on what cycling should be for an eighteen year old. I think and it was a it was keeping things sustainable, never going to extremes as far as the dietary requirements, everything. So I, n- I never did extreme dieting. I never did like. I never did. Al- I did one altitude training camp in my whole life, in my whole career, and I met my wife there. You know, in Sierra Nevada. You know, and it was like so. It was, it was kind of this whole. I want. I just wanted to find a, a balance that I could have a long, enjoyable career, and the results were always irrelevant. And that 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 was the attitude as an eighteen year old, and that's what I still tell him to keep now because it's just like the results should be relevant. It's the performance you need to be proud of. And as long as you do your best, you need to be proud. You need to be happy. Wow. That is a, uh, a Christmas card there. Um, but I need to go back a little bit because I have not read your book, uh, Chase by Pandas, but our... Shame, shame on you. But our producer did, and I am definitely... Gonna- it's a German entity as well, huh? The entity's got no excuses as well because it's in German as well. Already... Boss, I'm gonna go out on Amazon. I actually will text my wife right now. She's gonna get it on Amazon Express. We have it tomorrow morning. But why I bring this up is, like I said, I haven't read it. I'm reading some some notes. But you evidently every chapter is based on a different fear, and fear. We're told, you know, we're from a very young age that we're not supposed to be fearful of anything. But I'm intrigued enough to go want to go out and read this book right now um it's he said that there's the fear of losing a race a fear of retiring from the sport the fear of mountains or downhills the feel of doping and ultimately the fear of death 
Can you give us a little bit more insight into you being so open and speaking about a word that is kind of taboo in this manly sport of, of professional cycling? It's exactly that point. I think as in in this world today, we're not allowed to express the word fear. And as soon as you do, you get cut to pieces. And like I actually, the first time I actually spoke out about it in a race was in the Giro in, in 2021 after the start of Bianchi stage. And it, 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 it really blew me away because I kind of went in this first section in the, I can't remember what stage it was, but yeah, the start of Bianchi stage, we came into it and we were basically going like over 60Ks an hour, 65Ks an hour on gravel, like, and there's guys crashing everywhere. And I just like shot myself. I was like, this is freaking ridiculous. Like, what is this all? And I was like, this isn't worth it, you know? And that's always been my, that has always been my, goes back to what I said about the, performance but the same as i'm not it's just not worth crashing it's not worth killing yourself to to go and win a bike race i'm not even though i was i was fifth on gc or something at that point and i just i was like no just stop they almost stopped you know i like got past my new the whole peloton i'm like no i'm not doing this this is this is a joke i got to the finish and obviously being up on gc and whatever there was a lot of media attention and i got asked i was like what happened i was like wow I, i just got scared you know i wasn't I wasn't happy there. I wasn't. It was. It was. It was crazy. People were banging bars, like crashing everywhere, and I was like, "Yeah, uh, respect to the guys who wanted to do that. No problem. That they wanted to do it, but for me, the risk wasn't worth taking." And I got cut to pieces by people on social media, and also not only also Eurosport commentators, you know, and they're just saying, "Oh, he shouldn't be doing it. He shouldn't be racing a bike. Then he'd be scared." They and it's like, wait a minute. So here's somebody opening up about fear. And opening up about how, yeah, that I didn't think I don't think that was a, there's a place for that in Grand Tour racing. I got scared, but you know, fair place to the others. Like being honest, showing respectful, but not just showing weakness. And it's like suddenly you're you you don't deserve to have a contract anymore. And with comments like, oh, he's getting paid enough. He should be. He should just man up and deal with it. You know, and it's like, wow, what is that all about? You know, this this it's and it it just show what I I wanted to write the book to and detail those fears to really inspire the young younger generation all cyclists to be like look even the best guys in the world they get to a t- they get to the top of a downhill and they're like it's pissing rain and there's fog and you're like well this isn't good and you do you are, were scared right but you have to do it you get on with it and do it but nobody talks about that and i wanted to like tell these kids and be like no it's okay to be scared because the best guys in the world are scared and you know what i've had messages from not only young cyclists but also pro cyclists have been like thank you because you've actually they've actually kept racing kept believing they they're good enough in the sport because of the stuff i've talked about in the book as far as like the the fear of not being good enough but it's like i'm I'm like well it doesn't matter if you're not don't have that fear because just be as good as you can be you know and and just the yeah it's it's a really concept complex subject of course but I just wanted to, and also, obviously, it was my, it was the guy I co-wrote the book with who he had the idea of structuring the whole book around that. So some of the chapters, are, some of the fear, like title, the title of the chapters are a little bit out there. As far as they're, they're stretching the word fear to a, a bit further than it should be, but some of them are really, pre- some of them are really important to me in the fact that they're, they're meaningful and it's about, as I say, like showing that honesty and just, being open to the to the young cyclists out there and be like, look, it's okay to to have these feelings. So um, obviously, you put a lot of thinking into this book. Um, how long was that project inside of you and your head? Ten years, five years, or only one year, and then you worked really intensive on it, or it was slowly building up to I want to have this book and I want to have it a little bit like this or about fear. How how long did it uh, take you to get your mind around it? I, I didn't know if I wanted to do a book until I retired. I think doing the book, I got proposed to do, I got asked to do the book and I was like, I thought about it for a while and I was like, I found it a really nice way to get closure because I actually sat back and thought about my career and so no, it was all from my memories and it was, I think this book was written very different. One, we wrote it in French actually because my author's French so I, and how we did it 
he he I lived with him in Marseille, in La Palme Marseille. He was the press officer for the team and I so I knew him since then. So he's following my whole career closely. We were very close. And he would send me between six and ten questions every day for about six months. And I'd sit down, WhatsApp voice mess- messenger and send him a voice note. And so I would di- like basically dictate about an hour in response to these questions. And obviously with all the information, probably about 150 hours of, of dictation, he collated all that information and, and kind of together we wrote this book. And obviously it was a long process after that as far as writing, information checking, re- like getting more stories. Because, yeah, I've got a little bit of a, as I say, my, my retentive memory helped massively with this book as far as the little details of like this stage in the tour of austria in 2014 i hit my top speed at this this point in the race like to that level you know so it was um yeah i mean it was it was a lot of really a lot of hard work a lot more than i expected but also as i say it just it allowed me to really sit back and spend yeah the first six months seven months of last year when I had obviously it, it gave me something to do in that first year of retirement so to speak like to really adapt but also to think about yeah what I actually managed to achieve and then also then to move on from being a professional cyclist and kind of go on to other things well your book entitled Chase by Pandas is a is a really good transition into Liège Bastogne Liège like you your love of Liège your title of your book came from a guy running alongside of you in a panda suit when you won Liège Bastogne Liège. Can you tell us a little bit about your love of that race and what that race means to you besides just getting uh, associated with a panda for the rest of your career? First with the panda, this is a bit of a spoiler, but when I won the stage of the Giro in 21, which obviously in the end was my last stage, well, last win as a pro, I didn't know it at that point I wasn't going to retire. I hadn't even thought about retiring at that point, but that ended up being my last win as a pro. I get the same messages I had on that day in Liège. What the hell? What There was a panda. I'm like, so that's what happened. When I finished one, one in Liège, I get obviously the biggest day of my career. Got to my phone afterwards, all these messages about what the hell is with the panda? I'm like, seriously, people are talking about panda? I just won Liège or something Liège and talking about panda. Same thing happened when I won the Giro. And I looked back for the images and there was a panda on the side of the road at 7k to go on the final climb. It's just like, that is weird. Cause that's the only two times in my career that happened. <laughs> it's like happened on the, the that Liège, obviously a big one. And then the, the last day of my career. But yeah, I mean, Liège is just such a... I definitely fell out of love with it once they changed the finish line. I think that mainly because being such a fan of the sport and the history of the sport, the course obviously the course changes every year it always changed like slightly this climbs out this time's in but the i think that that finish at codance in the supermarket car park which it doesn't look like a supermarket car park on race day but it is that was really that was a that was the finish i grew up watching as a kid and when it moved from there the, the whole race just kind of it just lost a little bit for me and but yeah i mean it's still an incredible race. I mean, I was lucky enough to go and commentate for the international feed this year, and it was just such a buzz being at the start line. And it's it's the climbers' world championships, right? It's, it's, the, the climbers' classic, and I think one of the most competitive but underrated races on the calendar, as far as just how hard it is. And I think it's obviously all the monuments are brutal, but if you were going if you were going to go out and just ride a course alone solo. The age would be one of the hardest just because it's, I mean, there's four, what, four and a half thousand meters climbing, Arden, the weather, like, there's so many challenges as far as the technical little descent, the positioning on the climbs, and just that, it's almost like threading the needle for six, six and a half hours that you need to just get everything needs to go right to have the legs in the final to be able to do something. And um, what do you think is that, that, for example, Flanders or Obey, there's such a hype around these races? Um, Liege is the oldest race. Uh, that's why it's called La Doyenne. Um Why is well, why do you think is it that there's less love or less hype around that race? I mean, also in my eyes, it's one of the most beautiful, iconic, and hardest races, of course. I think the brutality is easier to understand with the cobblestones. And obviously the Belgian, like with the Flanders, the Belgian public, and also the way it's raced. I mean, you can see the intensity when 
in Flanders and Roubaix. You know, from an early stage in the race, it's just a, the the guys are warriors. They're finishing with model over the face. They're like it's a. I mean, even even myself. I mean, I think Paris Roubaix is probably the one race of the year that I would like. Okay, I'm going to try. I'm going to try and set an easy day, a recovery day for that day because I want to watch the whole race. You know, because it's just it's the race we all race we all love to watch whereas Liège it, it does come across as just another race there's nothing unless you know the area know the race there's nothing really that special that really stands out especially as obviously it, it still appears that the guys just all ride along together and the action happens at the back until the final whereas it's the Flanders Roubaix always it seems a bit more like the action's happening at the front of the race just because of the the, the intensity for the five of position five position you know so it's a uh, yeah it, it is interesting though because I think there is so much more there's so much history around the age with the same climbs being used for forever and then it, it's just uh and a, and a beautiful region at that but it's always gonna be up against the 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 couple classics I think for sure you know, I'm going to go out on a limb here and call you a thinker. You know, you've said some pretty intelligent things. And one of the most thing, the thing that blew me away was a couple of years ago, you founded when you were still racing or co-founded an investment group called Rubik's Venture Partners. When you were still racing, let's face it, cyclists are really good at spending money on watches, cars, fancy vacations, but you come up with an idea of creating an investment firm for athletes. That's amazing, but I need to know a little bit more information. Um, how did you come up with this idea and how's it going? It came up from me doing exactly that and having my advisory team around me. Like I was, I was, I kind of, this started way back in like 2014 2015 when i had this really decent profile in the uk and ireland but endorsements were just hard to come by and then obviously my best friend of, of like 20 years now he's my now my partner in rubik's ventures we uh he started he was doing due diligence for me in these venture capital investments that i was making and then i had guys that like other friends in different sports and cyclists asking me well how do you get into these things how do you invest in these kind of small startup businesses i said well i've got this I've got this this team of not not a team of guys. I sound a bit <laughs> a bit over the top, but I got these friends who have kind of helped and advised me. And it, it's they also wanted to we together we met our third partner, and yeah, we just we came up with this idea for an investment business that kind of did um, some ways to educate athletes, educate sports people, because but also to protect them. You know, because you do get a lot of investment opportunities that like I always had these two guys to look at them for me whereas to, to analyze the do the diligence and make sure they weren't just like gonna go bankrupt the next week you know and but also we spotted there was also an opportunity in these in these growth companies businesses to really use the athletes because i mean what does a these smaller businesses they 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 don't have the budget to be able to pay for marketing with athletes, so if the athlete is an investor in that business, he's more inclined. He's like that—that that was my approach always. I would like I'd invest in a business and then I'd put it on my social media to be like, look, this is a really cool product. I it's so cool that I invested in it, you know. And that—that that, what kind of there's no better endorsement in, than that. So it was, uh, yeah, that—that that was the basics around it. And obviously, I also found that I was learning so much just by getting these quarterly reports from these businesses that I was like, well, this is something that athletes can also it can help prepare them for for retirement so it's um yeah it's 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 interesting it's learning it's been a massive learning steep learning curve but yeah it, it obviously i just feel very lucky to have these guys around me as well that they really to to have this opportunity to be able to start something like this and yeah hopefully make it make a good go at it so um, how many people are, how is your investment then uh, going? You spread all over all of different continents or you go now we just do Irish or British or American companies and we have 10 people, we keep it like that or we have 100 people having invested. Like just give our yeah. listeners or viewers like a little bit of an idea of, of how it how it functions. Yeah, we've got uh, I think 61 investors total. 
And uh, so, I, and that's instead of being like an investment fund, our investors are all they're all shareholders. Uh, same type of shares that I own in the business, so they draw dividends from our profits. So yeah, and we have twenty four athletes currently from I think it's twelve or thirteen sports. I really need to 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 sure of that fact, but yeah. So it's my role has just been about liaising between the athletes and the and the portfolio businesses. We now have I think it's eleven, ten or eleven business, uh, investments. Uh, yeah, across eleven different businesses and yeah completely international we got athletes from all over the world and um mainly from minority minority sports and yeah we're, we're just really it's it's been as i say it's obviously it's a tough market for the investment world at the moment but we're doing well i mean it, it, all the businesses are are doing pretty pretty well at the moment and it's uh it's a case of yeah just really i mean it's keeping me busy, put it that way. It's a, it's a lot of, because a lot of, it's a, it's a big range of, I mean, there's a big range of uh, size of investment as well, as far as the businesses. Some of them are, like, we started our own, our own, we, we helped, like, ideate a business from the ground up, which is, it's a sustainable rice brand that's only available in the UK at the moment, but hopefully that'll grow environmentally friendly rice brand, so, uh, called Nice Rice, so that, that's one that's really, and then, there's there's a golf platform there's there's so many different there's such a wide range of different of different businesses across the portfolio that again i mean people assume that because you're a cyclist you're just going to invest in cycling businesses but that's that's kind of what we want to try and get away from it's a case of having a diversified portfolio and also spreading that risk as far as our investors have got they're buying into a diversified portfolio already you know they're not just investing in one business well like you said you were you're busy. You have that. You have a family. Everything going on. Um, I I have to interject this because it was so funny. I think it was Christian Vanneveld that sent me your contact information, and he just sent me the contact via the phone. And it wasn't Dan Martin. It wasn't Dan Martin. Here's his number. It was Crosswind Dan. What does that mean? Is that the nickname that you had there at uh, at Garmin, or just with Christian? What what what's uh, behind the Crosswind Dan? It was definitely it was Miller and and David Miller and Christian that I believe that name might be more Miller. Miller's always called me Crosswind, but it's between David and David and uh, Christian. They've always called me Crosswind for some reason. I'm not really I'm not really sure where that originated from, but it came from the fact that I was like 59 kilos when I turned pro, but I was apparently remarkably good at positioning and good in the crosswinds so they're just like it, it was almost like a tongue-in-cheek like some days i'd get it completely wrong and just get completely spat out the back but then other days i'll be right in the front so it was kind of i think i had one good day and they penned the nickname crosswinds and that that was then cursed afterwards and i was just useless afterwards but it was uh yeah <laughs> it, that, that that's kind of funny that it's still 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 in there and isn't that a good feeling to have like a few of your good old colleagues still have contact after career ends and we live on different countries, continents, we still keep contact? Like like just Bobby and me, for example, right? Or probably you and Christian as well. Isn't it a good feeling to have some good relationships keep going, you know, beyond the career? Oh, for sure. I mean, it shows you're, when you're on the road for so many years and day, like weeks together, you, your family, right? You, and not only that, you're almost, you're, the experiences that you go through, mainly the bad experiences, mainly the Paranese or I think for you guys the Criterium International experiences. That's probably the ones that like really like they you you get a bond there that you understand each other. And it's I never really raced with Christian that much, to be honest. But obviously we uh, we just got on really, really well. And yeah, with David Miller as well, and from this quick the quick set team in 2016, 2017, all that we had a real strong bond there. You know, and we all, a lot of us keep in touch still across the directors and riders, you know. So, as you say, it, it was always, it been somewhat surprising in some ways, the, the kind of, the guys you have stayed, have stayed in contact with, you say, but it's, it's just that, yeah, it, it's like, it's our lives, right? It's, it's uh, been important moments and we should manage to share them with. And you, uh, when you do literally with guys three weeks, three weeks without a break, you do get those bonds. Do you end up hating each other or, or being like brothers, right? That's absolutely true, 100%. Dan, listen, you are like a professor right now. You know, you mentioned 
fear, which I, I really think that people need to know about that. You miss, you've mentioned investment, but one thing that you said earlier was if you would write something to your 18-year-old self, it would be eat more on the bike. So I want to know your opinion, your suggestion about diet, because now we we have you know proven eating issues in the sport. Um, I didn't have a very strict diet. You said you didn't. I know Jens didn't because he would eat you out of house and home regardless where we went. But can you give us a little bit of advice, especially to the young men and women listening to this podcast, what you would say surrounding diet and fueling on the bicycle? I think it's about training your gut to be able to cope with as much calories on the bike as possible. I mean, that's the change in mentality. And I do, again, with hindsight, I actually feel like I was being at Slipstream was a massive benefit early in my career. And that's why I was able to have the legs to win the age because we were already doing this fabled like 80 to 100 grams of carbohydrate way back then, you know, and without even knowing it, we just got told, yeah, okay, drink two bottles and a bar every hour. It's like, okay. And I'm like adding it up now that I've stopped. I'm like, wait a minute, that was about, that was exactly what we're doing now, you know? And obviously the drinks have improved in quality now. And if that's the, I'm, I've always just stuck to the, stuck to the ethos that I just ate when I was hungry. And to the point that when I was going really good, if I did like a six hour train ride, my wife would always laugh at me because it would be like, literally, I, I, when I do a hard training block, I wake up at three o'clock in the morning, starving, and just go, go downstairs and have like a big bowl of cereal. Just be like that. And, it, and then just come back to bed, you know? And it's just like a, just stuff like that, you know? Just, I think, how do you stoke a fire? How do you keep a fire going? How do you stoke a fire? You just keep putting fuel on there. And if your metabolism's going, it means your condition's good. So I just keep eating and just, for whatever reason, I just get skinnier and skinnier, you know, because it just, I think it was a case of my body always understood that it hadn't, I was going to give it enough fuel to keep going good. So, you know, why, and this is obviously like, I don't do that now. I'm not hungry now, so I don't eat. That's why I'm still but kind of like, okay, it's, it's kind of lean, but it's, I just, I think I just developed this ability to just only eat when I was hungry and that. But that meant when I was training hard, I was always really, really, really hungry. And because my body knew it was getting the fuel it required, it would just stripped out all the fat. And it was just like, okay, I don't need to hold on to stores because he's going he's gonna to give me all the carbs I need to be able to perform. So, you know, and I think that's, I don't know if that's got any scientific basis to it at all, but it seemed to work for me because anytime I tried to like starve myself and lose weight, I always ended up putting on weight. So I was like, okay, let's just eat. And um, with a new business now, like a pro, are you telling these uh, advice to your guests or clients there? Um, give us a little bit like an overview of what is like a pro? What sort of business is it? What are you doing there? Oh, yeah. that uh, So we just, that was my business partner who's a pro triathlete. He, he came to me one day and he's like, look, there's nobody offering this type of experience as far as like opening up my head <clears throat> and sharing my knowledge as far as what it's like to be on a pro training camp, but also in Andorra. And it's, it's such a beautiful place to ride. It's really hard. And I think that's intimidates a lot of people, but I think that's also what's beautiful about riding in the mountains. It's like, you always just wait at the top. You go, you go with a pro training group and it's like, everybody has to wait at the top. So you just, with an amateur group, maybe just wait a little bit longer for some guys, but it's still like, I think it was just an opportunity to be able to like share. I get, I get asked so often, why the hell do you live in Andorra? Is it just for taxis? You know, I'm like, come and ride here and you'll see, you know, and, and that, that's what it was about. It was like, you know what? Like I want people to come here and see and help like one, help them improve as a cyclist and two, just come and see how cool it is to ride, to, to ride a bike here. Well, Dan, what you're doing with that camp you did for our listeners and our viewers today on this podcast Thank you for sharing your wealth of knowledge and intelligence with us. Go out, read Chased by a Panda, Dan's book. Uh, sign up for one of his camps. Uh, but Dan, listen, th this was awesome. Thank you so much for coming on Bobby and Yuns today. Thanks a lot, guys. It's been fun. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Huge thanks to Dan Martin for being our guest. Thanks for listening. And please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. 
The show was a Bellow production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne, and this episode was edited by Kirk Warner. Remember to check out the video version of this podcast by heading out to the Outside Watch YouTube channel. And please follow us on Twitter and Instagram, threads and Facebook. Just head to Bobby and Jens and send your cycling questions to us. Dan was known as Crosswind Dan, but who has the best nickname in the sport? Let us know by messaging us on social media at Bobby and Jens.